as John prayed just a, a, a few moments ago, I was reminded of the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which says, Not many, God chose not many of those who were rich, not many who were strong, not many who were noble, but God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise and the rich and the strong. God delights in choosing fragile, broken things so that the strength of God might be evident through, through uh, the life of those he's using. Do you feel particularly weak today? Do you feel particularly frail? <laughs> um, I think one of the, the hardest introductions for me into ministry after coming out of engineering where, um, where things were really working well, coming into ministry and just coming face to face with my own inadequacy. That no one likes to face their inadequacy. No one likes to, to, to come uh, right to the place of realizing they really have so little, if anything, to offer. And yet that is exactly where God delights in bringing his people because those are the moments in which God leads us to faith and God leads us really to usefulness. The story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz has been that story. How God delights in using frail, humble, meager um, outsiders to accomplish epic things for Christ. This morning in our passage in Ruth chapter 4 verse 17, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 224. Page 224. If you do not have a Bible, that Bible belongs to you. That is our gift to you so that you can have a copy of your own. But, but in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, we, we kind of come to this summary statement. God, by his kindness and grace, has allowed Ruth and Boaz to have a baby. And it says here, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, what do we know about David? Was David a pretty epic character in the history of Israel? Is David a pretty important character in the line of Jesus Christ? Of course, the answer to those is yes. And the, the, really the, the message of this morning's text is that our life is part of a greater story. Your life is part of a greater story. And God can maximize your usefulness. God can maximize the impact of your life. God can make much of, of himself through you as you submit yourself, humble yourself, and align yourself to his working in and through you, which happens only through the pathway of faith. It only happens as you determine in your heart that you're gonna believe that what God has said in his word is not only true and dependable, but it is the best plan 
for your life. Ruth and Naomi and Boaz have systematically aligned their heart consistently to that truth. And they've bowed their heart to do the things from day to day that demonstrate a faith in God. And because of their faith in God, they become kind of the epicenter of this massive promise that God will bring through Obed and through David and eventually through Jesus Christ. And so everyone in this room who have become believers in Jesus Christ through faith in his death and resurrection are beneficiaries of the faith of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. But it wasn't like the David and Goliath Goliath kind of faith. We know those, that kind of faith. Uh, that, that kind of faith, that kind of stands out. It, it kind of presents itself like, wow, that is a person of faith. More often than not, for those of us in this room, the kind of faith that God has called us to is faith in the moment. Faith in the daily grind. Faith in the day to day. Faith that happens in the background for you moms who are taking care of your kids, for you students who are faithfully studying and preparing for tests and showing integrity and not cheating, for those of you who are singles, not getting ahead of God, not taking precious gifts that don't belong to you until you're married, trusting that God's plan for you is best. Those of you who are employees, faithfully submitting yourself to the standard that God has set for those who are under an employer, those who are working and demonstrating integrity in the day-to-day, coming on time, leaving on time, being a person who's dependable. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. That's the kind of faith that matters. And that's the kind of faith that leads to God's usefulness in your life. God maximizing your usefulness as you couple yourself with dependable, consistent, day-to-day kind of faith. I'm reminded of the story of this man named Edward Kimball. Have you heard of him? Maybe you've heard of him. He was a Sunday school teacher in the mid-1800s. And uh, he led a, a Boston store clerk to the Savior. He, his heart and desire as a, as, a, as a teacher, as a Sunday school teacher, was, was how can I lead young boys to know who God is? And, and so he, he went and reached out to this, this young man who was, a, who was a shoe clerk. He invited him to come to Sunday school. He taught him the word of God, and this shoe clerk came to accept Christ as his Savior. Well, this clerk's name was Dwight L. Moody. Everyone heard, anyone heard of Dwight L. Moody? Well, Dwight L. Moody is uh, not just a significant figure as a pastor, but Moody Bible Institute is uh, called such for his namesake, the the immense footprint of spiritual legacy that D.L. Moody had. D.L. Moody's ministry, uh, not only in the States, but also in England, was was useful by God to to lead somebody by, by the name of Frederick B. Meyer to come to faith in Christ and then also to be a pastor of a small church there in England. Well, F.B. Meyer also preached in an American college campus, and and through his ministry, a man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman became a Christian. Through Chapman's ministry, 
He was influential in, in, in leading somebody by the name of Billy Sunday to the Savior as well. Billy Sunday, who had a, a, a dynamic evangelistic ministry. And, and through Billy Sunday's ministry, there was a revival that was taking place in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a group of local men who had been saved under Billy Sunday's ministry invited a man by the name of Mordecai Ham to preach in this, pre, in this evangel, evangelistic crusade. In that revival, a young man by the name of Billy Graham came to faith in Jesus Christ. You can trace the legacy of faithfulness from this Sunday school teacher back in the mid-1800s who no one would have known and certainly Edward Kimball would have never imagined the kind of legacy, the kind of impact his life would have on the, on, on the, 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 the world of Christianity because of his faithfulness to teach the word of God. Your life is part of a greater story. And your life is meant to point to God through faith in him. This happy ending of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, at, points, at, at, at some points in their life, it was bitter. At, at some points of their life, it was desperate. At times, it must have seemed very mundane. It must have seemed, seemed lonely for these two widows who had come back from Moab and from this aged, older, single man who was past his prime. Who could have imagined that God would work in the mundane parts of life, the faithful, consistent alignment of their heart to obey God's law, that God would use this instrumentally to lead to David and eventually lead to Jesus Christ? What led to this kind of impact? Simple faith. It was faith in the moment. Faith in the day to day. Faith in the grind. Obedience hour by hour to do what God had instructed. Not to take shortcuts, but to believe that God's plans never fail. It's faith that guided them. It's faith what, that's what, that, that positioned them for maximum impact. They didn't have to know the end of the story, but they had to know the one who writes the story. Do you believe in the God who writes the story? In order to do that, you need to be a person who believes in God and trusts in God moment by moment, day by day. So how important is faith and what does it look like? I think we need to start there and kind of set the context for our study this morning. What is faith and how important is it well, first, I want you to understand that faith is worshiping God. Faith is worship. We find that from Hebrews eleven six, just a, a few verses down from the, the verse that John quoted a little earlier. Hebrews eleven six that says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So how important is faith? Just a little important or very important? <laughs> very important. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Think about the struggles, the crises, the hardships that bombard your life. Think about the challenges, challenges that you experience from day to day and what that means in terms of believing God through them 
and recognize that the challenges that you face are opportunities to please God. Maximize those opportunities. Don't waste them. Understand that God is setting you up. He's setting you up with a golden opportunity to please him as you put your faith in him and trust him in the moment, day by day. You may never get another opportunity like the one that you're in. Maximize the opportunities that God gives to you in the moment to trust him. Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Now, this word acceptable is the same word for pleasing that we read in the first, in the, in the first verse. This is worship in that we are, we are seeking to please God through our worship, through the presentation of our life in day-by-day service of him. It goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is giving us opportunities, moment by moment, to believe him through our faith and thus to please him. When you choose to please God, when you choose to do things God's way, when you choose not to take shortcuts, to have what you want in the moment instead of waiting for God to give it to you in the way that he's promised to give it to you, when you trust God in that way, you are pleasing God and thus you are worshiping God. It's acceptable to him. Second, Faith is following God. Faith is following God. You're familiar with this verse in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your straight your paths. Faith in God is following God. One wise man, man once said, he said, Faith is not a leap into the darkness. Faith is a step into the light. Faith is not a leap into the darkness. Faith is a step into the light. Why? Because your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And as we find in this verse, as we trust in the Lord with all our heart, we don't lean to our own understanding, as we're walking in the steps, the the clear instructions that are given by the scriptures, he is gonna lead us as we follow him and those paths will be straight. There won't be any uncertainty. You'll know exactly what God wants as you choose to wait on his timing and you choose to follow the instructions he's given to you from his word. That's what faith looks like. Faith, even in the minuscule parts of life, the minute parts of life, when we choose not to cheat, when we choose not to leave early from work, when we choose not to react when somebody has offended us, when we choose not to complain, when we choose to obey our parents, when we choose to love our spouse, when we choose to follow God, In every part of life, we are choosing faith. We're choosing to believe. And because our life 
is part of God's greater story, we can trust that God will use our obedience and that he's working through our obedience to accomplish his purposes. You are part, your life is part of God's master plan. And you may never see it this side of eternity, but you can trust it. You don't have to know the end of the story, you just have to know the one who writes it. Do you trust in God who's writing this story? And believing him to such an extent that you are aligning your heart to do what his word says so that you can be an instrumental part in the story that God is writing. This morning we come to this passage. Let's come to this passage in Ruth chapter four. We're gonna take this week and next to kind of wrap things up in our study of the book of Ruth. And, and, and last week, Ruth essentially made a proposal to, to, to Boaz. And Boaz would have accepted the proposal. The only problem was there was a, a closer redeemer that was in the way. And so we asked ourselves this question, why did God do it this way? I, why did God make things complicated? It could have been so simple. If Boaz was the only person who was the closest kinsman, they wouldn't have had to go through all of these legal proceedings. It wouldn't have had to be a public kind of uh, display. Why, why did God choose to complicate matters and allow there to be a closer kinsman redeemer? There are two, reason, there are two reasons that I'm gonna cover probably one this week and probably the next one in more detail next week. First is God was drawing attention to faith. God did it this way because God was drawing attention to faith. God delights in bringing faith right out into the open. Not only so that he can commend faith the, or commend the faith of those who show faith, but also so he can commend the faith of those who see it and draw them to the same kind of behavior. Remember, this is, this is a, a shady time in this, the history of Israel. We find in Judges chapter 21, 25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet, here in Bethlehem, there's this enclave of those who have set their hearts on faith in believing God. God was drawing that faith out into open view. God desires to, to draw attention to faith. First, we see the faith in the people. We see this faith in the people who had assembled there at the gate. Go back with me to, to Ruth chapter four. Let me just read verses nine to 11, kind of catch us up in the story and then continue on with verse 11. It helps us see the faith of these people. Boaz, it says, said to the elders and to the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech. The operative word or the key word there is witnesses. Then he moves on, we see in verse 10, and Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may, be, may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. How do the people respond? Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gates and the elders said, we are witnesses. God brought all of this out into public view. Witnesses really was just the testimony. 
We're bearing testimony. We're those who have observed these legal proceedings, as it were. We are those who can testify that what happened here today happened just as it was written. These proceedings have been public. They've been put out into the open. They've not been hidden from view. None of the people who had witnessed the events that took place in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, had, had any idea that they were going to witness those kinds of things. They were, they were going a, 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 along in their own business. Certainly they had their own ideas of what was going to transpire that day. But when Boaz sat at the gate, they understood that there was business that was about to happen, and so they remained in order to play a part in observing and witnessing these proceedings. If you think about it, what they did was quite ordinary. It was quite mundane. This small blip on the radar of life, but witnesses to one of the most epic events in all of Old Testament narrative. They got to see it. They were there and had no idea what was about to transpire. Had there not been a closer kinsman, none of these things would have happened out in the open. We find from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 8, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. In that sense, there would be no need for a public legal proceeding. Only if the son or the closer kinsman redeemer decided not to fulfill the obligation would those things need to be coming out into the open. So it continues. It says, And the first son whom she bears shall shall, uh, succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife... And then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, then those proceedings will continue. You see, God allowed there to be a closer kinsman. So all of this, all of the the events of Ruth could come right out into the open. and, And the entire community of Bethlehem could witness the work of God in sealing this event. The events of Ruth 4, to 1, 4, 1 to 10 only happen if there's a question about the fulfillment of a closer redeemer. Boaz, if he had been the closest kinsman, would have just been able to fulfill his obligation. Ruth would have been his wife. There would have been no need for this public display. But now listen to what this, this group of assemb- assembled people say in response to what has just transpired. In chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Then all the people who were at the gates of the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Notice this eruption of praise. Notice this testimony of worship that is taking place right in front of this gate. Notice 
this emblematic work of faith that God is doing and accomplishing in the hearts of these people as they recognize this is not happening by coincidence. This is not just lucky circumstances. They see the providential hand of God in bringing all of these things together. The people of Bethlehem see God's kindness, his hesed, his loyal covenant love. They have seen it, they identify it, and they praise God publicly for it. It would have never happened this way had it not been for the fact that Boaz was not the the closest kinsman. And what is exceptional about this is they use the name Yahweh, the name the Lord. This is the the word, uh, the um, the title for God that describes his covenant-keeping quality. He is a promise-keeping God. It's exceptional that in this tiny book, the word Yahweh, Lord, it's in all caps. Every time you see the word in all caps, Lord, it's the word Yahweh. He is a covenant keeper. It's used 18 times in this book. Only twice it's used of the narrator. It goes to show that this enclave of those in Bethlehem in the midst of a, of a depraved national Israel, somehow God preserved this people to have faith in God and to, and to see the providence of God working, his kindness working for the sake of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. They learned to look to God. They learned to trust in him. They didn't have to know the end of the story. They just had to, had to trust in the God who writes the story. But this little town had a consistent model of faith. Of course, there was a faith of those living in Bethlehem, but also the faith of Boaz. That's what we look to next. Nearly every time that Boaz speaks, even in the wee hours of the morning, he, the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord is on his lips. When he greets his staff, in chapter two, verse four, he says, the Lord be with you. When he speaks to Ruth for the first time, in chapter two, verse 12, he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. When he awakes at midnight and sees Ruth at his feet, he has the, the, the awareness to be able again to address the Lord, the God of Israel, when he says, in chapter three, verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord. And then in verse 13, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. It's obvious why the narrator in chapter two, verse one, addresses Boaz as a worthy man. He's a worthy man because he consistently aligns his heart to God. As a worshiper, in blessing the Lord through his lips and in his testimony, but also in aligning his life so that every part of his life, in the big and little things of his life, he is following after the standards that God has set. He is demonstrating a heart of faith in following the principles and the statutes of the law. Can you think? Of any times, those specific times, when Boaz is demonstrating a heart that is tender and aligned to God, his generosity, the way that he treats his workers with dignity, the way he shows hospitality, the way he addresses the widow and the stranger and the foreigner, the way he 
He models his life after one who is, who is following the law, demonstrating not only generosity, but, but conformity to the Mosaic law, both in the gleanings that he allows these foreigners to glean in his field, but also the proceedings that we see in chapter four, verses one to 12. Boaz has learned to follow God. Boaz has learned to trust God. Boaz doesn't know what the end of the story is gonna be, but Boaz knows who writes the story. And so Boaz has aligned his heart in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment, trusting and believing and following after God. He doesn't have to know how things are gonna work out for him. He just has to know that as he aligns his life to God, God will be honored and glorified. Boaz was also a man who recognized and commended faith in others, which leads us to to see the faith of Ruth. Boaz draws attention to Ruth's faith in chapter three, verses 10 and 11, when he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after younger men. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Ruth is one who has shown true worthiness because she has demonstrated a commitment to faith in God in following after him. Not going after younger men, as Boaz says, but spending herself in service to her mother-in-law. Willing to marry Boaz in order to perpetuate the legacy of her dead husband and her mother-in-law. Her willingness to follow risky instructions that Naomi gave to her her commitment to leave her homeland and follow Naomi into Israel, laying down the possibility of ever getting married again, of ever enjoying rest and security. We see her embracing the real possibility of being poor and destitute and insecure for the rest of her life. She embraces the uncertainty of a future in a worldly standpoint because she is embracing the security of trusting in God. She knew God could be trusted and that was enough for her. In Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17, we find kind of the, this crystallized, the essence, really, the summary statement of, of her faith in God. When she responds to Naomi, she says this, do not urge me to leave you, Naomi, or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. We see in Ruth ferocious faith. Ferocious faith in God. A commitment to believe in the big things and the little things. Because Ruth didn't have to know how the story ended. She just needed to know the the God who writes the story. But where did did Ruth get her faith in God? Where did Ruth come to know this God of Israel? And there's really only one logical answer, and that is her mother-in-law, Naomi. So we turn our attention now to the faith of Naomi. Naomi really has been a woman of faith from the very beginning. Her commitment to the Lord has been clear at the earliest parts of this book and is is seen all the way to the very end. 
In Ruth chapter one, verses eight and nine, Naomi is praying this prayer over Ruth and Orpah when she says, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi's prayer for rest and security for her daughters-in-law would only come true, would only come to pass as the Lord, the God of Israel, the covenant keeper, the one who transcends time and space would show his kindness, his grace, his love to Ruth and Orpah there in Moab. But Naomi has also been a person who's allowed kind of the raw emotion of her life to come through. In Ruth chapter one, verse 13, she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. But instead of it leading her to bitterness, instead of it, uh, leading her to a place of, of refusing and rejecting God, we see this return. This return of her life from chapter one all the way, uh, verses nine, all the way to the end of the chapter is we see this repeated word of return, which is emblematic of repentance. Naomi has a repentant heart, a heart that is consistently pointing to God so that she recognizes the clear hand of God. When Ruth comes back after the first gleaning, she says in chapter two, verses 19 and 20, she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi, just like Ruth and just like Boaz, and just like the town of those living in the town of Bethlehem have come to see the providential hand of God and not pointing to circumstances or coincidences, but pointing to the direct working of God that is working under the surface to accomplish his purposes through his people. We can describe the words of Naomi as those who reflect a heart of worship and a heart of faith. Naomi has consistently believed God in the little things and in the big, big things of life because Naomi didn't have to know the end of her story. Naomi just needed to know the one who writes the story. Next week, we're gonna take a look at God who demonstrates his faithfulness. Not only does he bring faith out into the open and commends the faith in others, but we can trust God because God is faithful. And this little village of Bethlehem recognizes the faithful, faithfulness of God in, in many different ways. His faithfulness to Jacob, his faithfulness to Judah, his faithfulness to Abraham, and then his faithfulness to them as a, as a little town. This town was able to celebrate the work of God in their lives, and we, we see from verse 13, we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up more next week, but we see in Ruth chapter uh, 4, 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The beginning and end of this book, there is bookended by the barrenness of Ruth and the blessing of God in bringing conception. 
that God is the one who instrumentally gives and takes away. He, gave, he took away the lives of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. He gives the life of this little son, Obed, who will be the great-grandson or great-granddaddy of King David. Bethlehem can rejoice with Naomi because of God's kindness to her in giving her what they say is a redeemer. This redeemer who is God's blessing to her in, in all of her, her longings to have a, a, a legacy, God has given her rest in this redeemer. She has no idea the significance of Obed and the, the real redemption that is about to come through this future line of Obed leading to Jesus. But not only was God instrumentally kind in blessing Naomi, but also in blessing Bethlehem. Blessing Bethlehem with a tangible evidence of God's working through circumstances to accomplish his objectives. And then the blessing that comes to Israel through this future uh, legacy of, of King David who will, who will bless the nation of Israel. And that God will bless through David in bringing a future Messiah. A Messiah that, will, that came to bless the world as we put our faith and trust in him for salvation. You can trust, put your trust, place your faith in a faithful God. This morning, have you come to a place of bowing your knee, humbling your heart, and trusting in Jesus Christ as the only Savior? Have you come to a place of acknowledging your sin? Come to a place of recognizing that there's, there's no amount of, of goodness that can overcome the wickedness of your life. That because you are tainted, because you are stained, you can't wash those stains away on your own. The only one that can blot out those stains is Jesus Christ. His blood will blot away those stains. As God the Father looks on his son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect righteousness, the perfect substitute, in dying in your place on the cross, accepting your guilt, placing it on himself, dying for you. And then this great exchange, this exchange of faith that happens as we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. His righteousness is then placed on us and our sin is placed on him. He paid the price for us. But he didn't stay dead he rose again to demonstrate that we can have life with God. Life that happens because of faith in Christ. And those who come to believe in Jesus for salvation come to recognize that there's something wholly different about our life. We have the opportunity as God's people to live by faith because the just will live by faith. And those who believe God, as we come back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we recognize that without faith it's impossible to please God. And so we, we realize in the moment by moment, day by day parts of life, we choose between believing in God or, or disbelieving in God. When you're tired and you don't feel like responding to the person 
in your house, whether that's a child or a friend or a spouse, you, you, you feel a little frazzled, you, you feel a little spent, you're, you're a little exhausted, and, and in your flesh you feel like lashing out, but you choose to believe in that moment. God, I, I'll believe that the best way to respond to my wife or my husband or my child or my parent, the best way to respond to them is the way you've prescribed that my, my mouth will be always with grace seasoned with salt. My, my lips will speak those things that praise you. Over the past several weeks, I've had a number of men come to me and talk about the significance or the, the problem that they have with lust. And, and, and quite honestly, it is a struggle that probably every uh, man in this room fights day by day. And we can either choose to believe in the good gifts of God in waiting for God to bring those good, good things in his own timing, or we can choose in the moment to have what we want outside of God's master plan for us. We can choose not to believe in God. Yesterday was an opportunity for me, and this is being real candid with you. Yesterday was an opportunity for me to believe over and over and over and over again in this area. To say, I choose to believe in you. I will not act in my flesh. I will trust you are better. And it just comes down to the day by day, moment by moment, trusting in God to do what is right to do what is best. I am going to believe in God in the moment-by-moment parts of of life. And when I do, I I maximize my usefulness and I I maximize the opportunity that God can can work out his plans in my life. I'm reminded, and I'll close with this. I'm reminded. I believe it's it's the prayer of, of the Apostle Paul for the church in Colossae, when he says, I pray that you might have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and abounding in the knowledge of God. If you want to maximize your usefulness, if you want to maximize your fruitfulness, you will couple your heart with obedience. You will choose to believe. And in choosing to believe, you're going to be a worshiper and you're going to be a follower of God. Oh God, I pray that you would help us. Help us moment by moment to trust you. Help us day by day to believe that your way is better. It's the better way. There don't need to be shortcuts. There don't need to be um, us striving for the things that we want. We can trust you, that you're better. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we choose moment by moment to walk a worthy life, that you would demonstrate your glory through us and you would have your purposes worked out through our lives. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, God bless you.